Lesson 2 for January 5 through to 11, Among the Lampstands. Sabbath afternoon, January 5. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are opening your book again this week, that mighty book of Revelation, the book that has words that sometimes we can't understand and concepts we can't understand, but we know that your Spirit will guide us as we go through this explanation of what it means this week. We pray that your Holy Spirit will guide us, but also that we will put ourselves in a position where we can be influenced by you to lead lives that will show others that what is in Revelation is important, not just for us, but for them. Please open our minds, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our memory text this week is Revelation chapter 2 and verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's read that again. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Psalm 73 describes the psalmist's bewilderment as he observed the boastful pride of the ungodly. They lived in abundance and ease, in contrast to the suffering of the righteous. This injustice greatly troubled the psalmist, which he records in verses 2 to 16, who, in his perplexity, went to the sanctuary, as we read in verses 16 and 17. Let's look at that now. Psalm 73, verses 2 through to 17. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pangs in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than heart could wish. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue walks through the earth. Therefore his people return here, and waters of a full cup are drained by them. And they say, How does God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly who are always at ease. They increase in riches. Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain, and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been plagued and chastened every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their end." There, in the presence of God, he was given a deeper understanding of the matter. Centuries later, an aged apostle found himself on a rocky prison island because of his faithful witness. In his distress, he got the news that the churches under his care were suffering. Yet, at that critical moment, he was given a vision of the resurrected Christ in the heavenly sanctuary. Here, as with the psalmist, the Lord revealed to John some mysteries of this life and the struggles it brings. 
This sanctuary scene provided him with the assurance of Christ's presence and care, an assurance that John was to pass on to these churches and to the succeeding generations of Christians throughout the centuries, until the end of this world's history. This week, in addition to introducing Christ's ministry in the heavenly sanctuary, we will begin looking at the first of his seven special messages to his church, addressed collectively to the seven churches in Asia, but which also have meaning for us today. Next week, we will look at his messages to the other six churches. Sunday, January 6, on Patmos. Question. Read Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. What does John tell us of the circumstances in which he received the visions of Revelation? Revelation 1, verse 9. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Patmos is a barren, rocky island in the Aegean Sea. It is ten miles long, that is about 15 kilometres, and six miles across, that's about 10 kilometres, at its widest part. The Romans used it together with other surrounding islands, as a penal colony for banished political offenders. Early Christian authors, living relatively close to the time of the writing of the book of Revelation, state unanimously that Roman authorities had banished John to Patmos because of his faithfulness to the gospel. On Patmos, the aged apostle surely endured all the hardships of Roman imprisonment. He probably was treated as a criminal, chained in fetters, given insufficient food, and forced to perform hard labour under the lash of the whip of merciless Roman guards. In Acts of the Apostles, page 570 and 571, we read, Patmos, a barren, rocky island in the Aegean Sea, had been chosen by the Roman government as a place of banishment for criminals. But, to the servant of God, this gloomy abode became the gate of heaven. Here, shut away from the busy scenes of life and from the active labours of former years, he had the companionship of God and Christ and the heavenly angels, and from them he received instruction for the church for all future time. End of quote. Question. What other Bible characters have endured hardship, even despite or maybe even because of their faithfulness to God? Let's have a look at Daniel, chapter 3, verses 16 to 23. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But, if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury, and the expression on his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
He spoke and commanded that they heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated, and he commanded certain mighty men of valour who were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their coats, their trousers, their turbans, and their other garments, and were cast into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace exceedingly hot, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. And in Acts chapter 7, verses 54 to 60, we read, When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God, and said, Look, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at him with one accord, and they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. The followers of Christ should never forget that whenever they find themselves in circumstances similar to those of John, they are not left alone. The same Jesus who came to John with the words of hope and encouragement in the midst of the hardship on Patmos still is present with his people to sustain and support them in their difficult situations. So to finish today, how can we understand the difference between suffering for Christ's sake and suffering for other reasons, including our own wrong choices? Or what about suffering for reasons we cannot fathom? How can we learn to trust the Lord in every situation? Monday, January 7, on the Lord's Day. Question, read Revelation chapter 1, verse 10, along with Exodus 31, 13, and Isaiah 58, verse 13, and Matthew 12, verse 8. According to these texts, what day is clearly specified in the Bible as the Lord's? How meaningful must this day have been for John in the midst of his hardships? First of all, Revelation chapter 1 and verse 10. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. And Exodus 31 verse 13. Speak also to the children of Israel, saying, Surely my Sabbaths you shall keep, for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. And Isaiah 58.13, If you turn away your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, 
the holy day of the Lord honourable, and shalt honour him, not doing your own ways, nor finding your own pleasure, nor speaking your own words. And Matthew chapter 12, verse 8. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. According to these texts, what day is clearly specified in the Bible as the Lord's? How meaningful must this day have been for John in the midst of his hardships? From the Acts of the Apostles, page 581, we read, It was on the Sabbath that the Lord of glory appeared to the exiled apostle. The Sabbath was as sacredly observed by John on Patmos as when he was preaching to the people in the towns and cities of Judea. He claimed as his own the precious promises that had been given regarding that day. End of quote. Revelation 1 verse 10 clearly suggests that the Apostle Paul received the vision on the seventh day Sabbath. Although looking with anticipation toward future events, even to the second coming of Christ, which is called the day of the Lord, John was talking about the time at which he himself had the vision of these future events, and that was on the Sabbath, the Lord's day. And with this, we'll look at Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. And Isaiah chapter 13, verses 6 to 13. And that reads, Wail, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore all hands will be limp, every man's heart will melt, and they will be afraid. Pangs and sorrows will take hold of them. They will be in pain as a woman in childbirth. They will be amazed at one another, their faces will be like flames. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with both wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate. And he will destroy its sinners from it, for the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened in its going forth, and the moon will not cause its light to shine. I will punish the world for its evil, and the wicked for their iniquity. I will halt the arrogance of the proud, and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. I will make a mortal more rare than fine gold, a man more than the golden wedge of Ophir. Therefore I will shake the heavens, and the earth will move out of her place, in the wrath of the Lord of hosts, and in the day of his fierce anger. And Second Peter chapter 3, verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which... The heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. No question that amid his sufferings, this vision-filled Sabbath must have become to him a foretaste of a life free from suffering, which he and the faithful of all ages will experience after the second coming. Indeed, in Jewish thinking, the Sabbath is deemed as a foretaste of the Olam Haba, the world to come. And from the Seventh-day Adventist Bible Commentary, Volume 7, page 955, we read, The Sabbath, which God had instituted in Eden, was precious to John on the Lonely Isle. What a Sabbath was that to the lonely exile, always precious 
in the sight of Christ, but now more than ever exalted. Never had he learned so much of Jesus. Never had he heard such exalted truth. And to finish the day, compare the two versions of the fourth commandment of the Decalogue in Exodus 20 verse 11 and Deuteronomy 5 verse 15. These texts point to the seventh-day Sabbath as a memorial of both creation and deliverance, reminding us that God both made us and redeemed us. How can we, each Sabbath, resolve to keep before ourselves the reality of God, both as our Creator and as our Redeemer? Think about this too. What good would it be for Him to be our Creator without His being our Redeemer as well? Tuesday, January 8, John's Vision of Christ on Patmos Question. Read Revelation 1, 12-18 and compare John's portrayal of Christ with the divine being described in Daniel 10, verses 5 and 6. How does Jesus appear in John's vision? What is he doing? Revelation 1 Beginning at verse 12, Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun, shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid, I am the first and the last." I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive for evermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. And we'll compare that with Daniel 10, verses 5 and 6. I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man clothed in linen, whose waist was girded with gold of Euphaz. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like torches of fire, his arms and feet like burnished bronze in colour, and the sound of his words like the voice of a multitude. John sees Jesus dressed as high priest, walking among the lampstands. The picture of Jesus walking among the lampstands points to God's promise to ancient Israel that he would walk among them as their God, as we read in Leviticus 26 verse 12. I will walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. In Revelation, the lampstands represent the seven churches in Asia to which Revelation was originally sent. 
Uh, Revelation one twenty reads, The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. And, as we will see on Wednesday, the lampstands also symbolize God's church throughout history. Through the Holy Spirit, Jesus' watch care continues to be over his church on earth. He will be continually with his people until he brings them to their eternal home. Moreover, the picture of Jesus as high priest among the lampstands is drawn from the ritual practice in the Jerusalem temple. The daily task of an appointed priest was to keep the lamps in the holy place burning brightly. He would trim and refill the lamps that were waning, replace the wicks on the lamps that had gone out, refill them with fresh oil, and then relight them. In such a way, the priest became acquainted personally with the situation of each individual lamp. In the same way, Jesus is acquainted with the needs and circumstances of his people and intercedes for them personally. Question. Read Revelation chapter 2, verses 2, 9, 13 and 19, and Revelation chapter 3, verses 1, 8 and 15. What does the statement, I know, say about Jesus' acquaintance with the situations and needs of God's people? Revelation 2, verse 2 reads, I know your works, your labour, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil, and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And verse 9, I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich, and I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. And verse 13 reads, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name, and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. And verse 19. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience, and as for your works, the last are more than the first. And Revelation chapter 3, verse 1, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things say he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. And verse 8, and that reads, I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. And verse 15. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. Jesus identified himself with the titles of God as the first and the last. Isaiah, verse 44, verse 6 says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. And Isaiah 48, verse 12, Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, my called. I am he, I am the first, I am also the last.
The Greek word for last is eschatos, from which the word eschatology, the study of end-time events, comes. The meaning of this word shows that the focus of eschatology is on Jesus Christ, who has the last word on final events. He is the one who, as it says in Revelation one eighteen, who lives and possesses the keys of Hades and of death. By his death and resurrection, Jesus has been given the authority to open the gates of death, as we read in Job 17, verse 16. Will they go down to the gates of Sheol? Shall we have rest together in the dust? And Psalm 9, verse 13. Have mercy on me, O Lord. Consider my trouble from those who hate me, you who lift me up from the gates of death. All who trust in him will rise from the grave to everlasting life. We read in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 21 to 23. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But every one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ's at his coming. Jesus' faithful followers don't need to fear, because even the dead are under his watch care. And if that is so with the dead, how much more is it so with the living? So to finish today, First Thessalonians 4 verses 16 and 17. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Wednesday, January 9. Christ's Messages for Then and Now. Question. Read Revelation chapter 1, verses 11, 19, and 20. Jesus also spoke seven distinctive messages for the churches in Asia. What does the fact that there were more than seven churches in the province suggest, in general, about the symbolic significance of these messages for Christians? Revelation 1, beginning at verse 11, saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, and what you see, write in a book, and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And in verses 19 And 20. Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. The messages that Jesus directed John to send to the seven churches are recorded in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. Their meanings apply on three levels. Historical application, 
Those messages originally were sent to seven churches located in prosperous cities of first century Asia. The Christians there faced serious challenges. Several cities set up emperor worship in their temples as a token of their loyalty to Rome. Emperor worship became compulsory. Citizens also were expected to participate in public events and pagan religious ceremonies. Because many Christians refused to participate in these practices, they faced trials and at times even martyrdom. Commissioned by Christ, John wrote the seven messages to help believers deal with these challenges. Prophetic Application Revelation is a prophetic book, but only seven churches were chosen to receive its messages. This fact points to the prophetic character of the messages as well. The spiritual conditions in the seven churches coincide with the spiritual conditions of God's church in different historical periods. The seven messages are intended to provide, from heaven's perspective, a panoramic survey of the spiritual state of Christianity from the first century to the end of the world. And universal application. Just as the entire book of Revelation was sent as one letter that was to be read in every church, and we read that in uh, Revelation 1 verse 11, but it also occurs in Revelation 22:16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. So, the seven messages also contain lessons that can apply to Christians in every age. In such a way, the messages represent different types of Christians in different places and times. For instance, while the general characteristic of Christianity today is Laodicean, some Christians may identify with the characteristics of some of the other churches. The good news is that, whatever our spiritual condition, God, as Ellen White writes in Selected Messages, Book 1, page 22, meets fallen human beings where they are. So to finish the day, Suppose the Lord were to write a letter today to your local church, a letter written in the form of the messages to the seven churches. What might such a letter say about the challenges your church is facing, as well as its spiritual condition? Thursday, January 10. Message to the Church in Ephesus. Ephesus was the capital of the largest city in the Roman province of Asia, located on the major trade routes. As the chief seaport of Asia, it was a very important commercial and religious centre. The city was filled with such public buildings as temples, theatres, gymnasiums, bathhouses and brothels. It also was known for the practice of magic and was notorious for immorality and superstition. Yet the most influential Christian church in the province was in Ephesus. Question, read Revelation chapter 2 verses 1 to 4. How does Jesus present himself to the church in Ephesus? 
For what great qualities does Jesus commend this church? What concerns does Jesus express? Revelation 2, beginning at verse 1, to the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things, says he, who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks, I know your works, your labour, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil, and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars, and you have persevered, and have patience, and have laboured for my name's sake, and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. In their early days, The Ephesian believers were known for their faithfulness and love, as we read in Ephesians 1.15. Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, and your love for all the saints. Although they experienced pressure both from outside and inside the church, the Christians in Ephesus remained firm and faithful. They were hard-working and obedient to the truth. Indeed, they could not tolerate false apostles in their midst. However, their love for Christ and their fellow members began to wane. Although the church stood firm and faithful, without God's love, even their own lamp was in danger of going out. Question. Read Revelation chapter 2, verses 5 through to 7. What three things does Jesus urge church members to do in order to revive their first love and devotion to Christ and to their fellow believers? How are these three things sequentially related? Revelation 2, beginning at verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Prophetically, the situation in the church in Ephesus corresponds to the general situation and spiritual condition of the church from A.D. 31 to 100. The apostolic church was characterized by love and faithfulness to the gospel, but by the end of the first century the church began losing the fire of its first love, thus departing from the simplicity and purity of the gospel. So to finish the day, imagine yourself as part of a congregation whose love is waning. The members may not be practicing any known or open sin. On one level, They are even doing what's right, yet they suffer from formalism and coldness. How can Jesus counsel here, free such a church from this situation? Friday, January 11. In the Youth Instructor, April 5, 1900, Ellen White wrote, The persecution of John became a means of grace, 
Patmos was made resplendent with the glory of a risen Saviour. John had seen Christ in human form with the marks of the nails which will ever be his glory in his hands and feet. Now he was permitted again to behold his risen Lord clothed with as much glory as a human being could behold and live. The appearance of Christ to John should be to all believers and unbelievers an evidence that we have a risen Christ. It should give living power to the church. At times, dark clouds surround God's people. It seems as if oppression and persecution would extinguish them. But, At such times, the most instructive lessons are given. Christ often enters prisons and reveals himself to his chosen ones. He is in the fire with them at the stake. As in the darkest night the star shines the brightest, so the most brilliant beams of God's glory are revealed in the deepest gloom. The darker the sky, the more clear and impressive are the beams of the Son of Righteousness, the risen Saviour. And that brings us to our discussion questions for this week, and there are three of them. One, John shares with the readers what he saw and heard on Patmos. As you read Revelation one twelve to 20 what do you see and hear? What words of comfort can you take from the truths revealed in this vision? Let's read that, Revelation 1, beginning at verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive for evermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. What words of comfort can you take from the truths revealed in this vision? 2. In Revelation 14.7, the first angel urges the inhabitants of the earth at the time of the end to worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. This language is taken from Exodus 20 verse 11. Listen. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. What does the first angel's message tell us about the end-time significance of the Sabbath as revealed in Revelation? 3. There's a strange irony that many Christians face. The longer they are in the church, the easier it is for their faith to grow dim or even to die out. 
The opposite, though, should happen. After all, the longer we walk with Jesus, the more we should learn about him and his love for us. How, then, can we keep the fire of faith not only burning, but burning brighter and brighter, as it should? Inside Story Our mission story this week is titled Gift of a Child and it's by Andrew McChesney of Adventist Mission. Janice Clark never planned to adopt a former student's baby but then the telephone rang on a cold March day. I'm having a baby that I can't keep and I'm wondering if you will have him, Annette said. What do you mean, have him? asked Janice, a 47-year-old physical education teacher at Mamawi Atoskatan Native School, a Seventh-day Adventist mission school for First Nations children in the Canadian province of Alberta. I want you to adopt him, said Annette, 18, already the mother of two. Janice didn't think the girl was serious, but she tried to organise a meeting with Annette and her parents. Every effort fell through. Two months later, Janice's phone rang. It was Annette. Could you come to the hospital to support me tomorrow when I give birth? she asked. She was going to have the baby by caesarean section. Janice and her husband, who have five biological children and four foster children, arrived at the hospital in the early morning. The nurse greeted them with the words, Oh, you're the adoptive parents. Janice was shocked. She had thought that Annette had other plans for the baby because adoption had only been mentioned once in that single phone call. In the hospital room, Janice asked the expectant mother about her plans. "'What's the baby's name?' she asked. "'It's your baby,' Annette said. "'You should name him.' Only then did it sink in that this would be her adopted baby." A healthy boy was born a few hours later on March 12, 2016. Janice stayed at the hospital that night and brought the baby home a day later. She named him Huxley. Janice believes that Annette gave her the baby because of the teacher's love at the school. It's not about me personally, she said. I worked with her family at this school for many years. She and all her siblings know that the teachers love them. That's why she asked us to be the boy's parents. Tears formed in Janice's eyes as she spoke. It's so humbling to think that I am part of this picture, she said. I'm expected to teach Huxley about his creator. And there's a beautiful photograph here of Janice and Huxley together. He looks like he could be about four years old. Part of the second quarter 2018 13th Sabbath offering helped Mamawi Astoskakan Native School expand its education program. The former student's name has been changed. God knows what is happening, and he has perfect timing, Janice said. All we can say is praise the Lord. 
You have been listening to a reading of the Adult Sabbath School Bible Study Guide by Dr. Percy Harold from Queensland, Australia. This service is brought to you by Hope Channel, the Sabbath School Department and Christian Services for the Blind. Remember, God is always faithful.